Blessings to you, praise team, for those very wonderful songs this morning. Our hearts have been very encouraged by the Lord. Uh, I have observed over the years that we have a hard time saying three things. And I wonder this morning if you would read those three things with me. Please join me. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Boy, those are awful easy to read, aren't they? That was very easy. But these statements are very hard to admit. Now, why do I raise this? Well, I raise it um, for a number of reasons, but one, I, I think this. If I were to ask, how many people have lived in a family where one or more members of the family never said these words? I think that a lot of hands would go up. I think we would be surprised how many of us would raise our hands. And maybe you're the one in your family. You cannot bring yourself to say these words even when you know they are true. And why is this so hard for us? Well, there's something within all of us that doesn't want to admit guilt, fault, to say that I'm the one to blame, I've caused all the pain. And I think today if we knew the full truth, that this is the hidden reason why many marriages fail, why many families are fractured, and why many churches are divided. Uh, Theodore Epp, you may know, was a man who founded Back to the Bible radio broadcast. And he preached a number of sermons on the life of Joseph that were published in a book. And in those sermons, he said there are four conditions to reconciliation. And here are the four, according to Mr. Epp, and I think we all would agree that he was right. For reconciliation to happen, conscience has to be awakened, sin has to be confessed, repentance has to be made, and a new life has to be evidenced. Mr. Epp also said that these four conditions show the right heart attitude. So true reconciliation can never happen until these four things spring from our hearts. Now, as we have been looking in the last couple of weeks at Joseph's ten older brothers, may I ask you, where are they in this process? They're still at stage one, aren't they? Conscience has been awakened. They know they did wrong. But has sin been thoroughly confessed? No. Has repentance been completely made? No. Has a changed life been entirely demonstrated? No. They have not completed the path to reconciliation. I want you to think about this for a moment. Sin is so deeply ingrained in us. Denial comes so natural to us that this process sometimes takes a long time, doesn't it? It surely does. 
And so what does God do? Well, He keeps working on us, doesn't He? Uh, God will not let up. And if we ask the question, why? why? Why does He not let up? Well, let me give you a voice from the past who I think helps us see part of the answer. John Chrysostom was a 4th century pastor who was greatly used of the Lord. And I want you to notice what he said. I just never really quite heard it like this. He said, we are commanded to have only one enemy, the devil. With him, never be reconciled. But with a brother, never be at enmity in your heart. Let me ask today, are we at enmity with somebody? I surely know this, if we are, God is displeased, isn't He? Because we're only to have one enemy. And if our hard attitude is not right, God mercifully will work a way within us until it is. And so this morning, as we continue in our series on the life of Joseph, we come to these very important chapters, chapters 44 and 45, in which the Bible reveals to us the path to reconciliation. Do you know in these chapters is the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis? The longest speech. That tells you how important this is to God. And so we're going to see this in three parts as we work our way through this portion. Part one comes today. And what I want us to see today are uh, three issues that we must come to grips with if we are to pursue this path to reconciliation. Open your Bibles to Genesis 44. In the Pew Bible in front of you, it is page 44. And let me begin by reading verses 1 through 6. Genesis 44, and please follow along in your Bibles in verses 1 to 6. Then he commanded the steward of the house, this is Joseph now, Fill the men's sacks, his ten brothers, with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up! Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. Now here's the first issue that we have to come to grips with on this path to reconciliation. And that is that God will use circumstances to test our heart attitudes. God will do this with you and He will do this with me. 
so that he can bring us to the place of reconciliation. Now, you know, uh, three times Joseph tests his brothers. Uh, The first time he accused them of spying, and his goal was to keep Simeon in prison, forcing them to bring Benjamin, their youngest brother, down with them when they returned. Uh, The second test we saw at the end of chapter 43, when at a lavish banquet, Joseph gave to Benjamin, the youngest brother, five times as much as the older ten brothers. And his desire was to see, did the old jealousies and hatred still exist? Did the brothers despise the favored Benjamin, the son of Rachel, as much as they had hated Joseph himself many years before? Now as we come here to chapter 44, this third test, it's Joseph's master stroke. It is his master stroke. He knows before reconciliation can occur... The hearts of his brothers have to be revealed. He understands that Theodore Epps' four conditions must be met by the ten brothers before he can reveal himself. Before he reveals to them who he really is, their hearts have to be revealed for who they really are. And Joseph knows that before reconciliation can occur, this testing must happen. So what does he do? He makes Benjamin, now the favored son of their father Jacob, appear guilty of theft. All are now put in jeopardy because of the apparent theft of the unknown ruler's cup. What Joseph will eventually do is he will offer all of them freedom if they will just turn their backs on Benjamin and abandon him to slavery. And then he provides for them a perfect cover to explain to their fathers, for after all they can say, Benjamin was guilty, we were helpless in the face of this powerful ruler, what could we do? We had to come back with the grain for our starving families. Now I want to ask you, as we look at this third test, Does this sound strangely familiar to you? Does it? You know what Joseph is doing? He is turning back the wheels of time to recreate the first crime. Look at it. In chapter 37, it was 10 against 1. Now chapter 44 will be 10 against 1. In chapter 37, the youngest, Joseph, was the favored. Now it is Benjamin who is the youngest and the favored. There were reasons to hate Joseph. There are now still reasons to hate Benjamin. They sold Joseph into slavery. Now there's the opportunity to abandon Benjamin to slavery. They covered their actions with a lie, and they have a perfect excuse for their actions now. 
What a brilliant master stroke this is by Joseph. Are they the same jealous, hateful, self-serving brothers they were before? Or have they changed? And all of us know instinctively who is behind this, don't we? It is God. It is God. Remember, Joseph is the very first man in the Bible about whom it is said explicitly that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I agree with one Bible teacher who says this, Joseph was directed by God's Holy Spirit to test the brothers to the fullest extent. I have a question. Does God do the same with us? Does God do the same with us? What's the answer? Yes, He does. Read with me this morning, James 1.12. Join me as we read it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. This verse is telling us that what God did with the brothers, He does with us. And I want you to notice two things. There are two separate words here. The word trial and the word test. And they have two different nuances of meaning. Trial means to prove one's character... And test means to approve one's character after examining. So two different shades of meaning sharing with us two purposes that God has in allowing trials and tests. Trying circumstances show us what is in us and then they are a means of purifying us so that God then approves what we have become. And what we are learning is that God was working in the brothers to bring them to Himself and to change them. And He wants to do the same with you and me. Here's the question. Will we let Him? Will we let Him? That's the great question. When the trials and the tests come to reveal our heart attitude, will we love God so much, as this says, that we will submit to what He is doing, that we might be proved and approved? That is the question. And that is the first issue we must all come to grips with. My circumstances are of God because he is testing my heart attitudes. Now let's notice the second issue that all of us have to come to grips with. Number two, we often live in denial about our true selves. We often live in denial about our true selves. Look with me at verse 7 and notice what occurs. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? 
Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal gold or silver from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said to them, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched and opened each sack, starting with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Can you imagine how happy and secure these brothers felt before the steward caught up with them? Everything had gone so well, hadn't it? They had secured Simeon's release. They had brought back the original money and explained that they didn't know about it, but they had returned it, and their explanation was accepted. They had protected Benjamin from harm, and he was now headed back with them. And then this master, who on the first visit had been so harsh, was now incredibly benevolent and kind and generous. Can you imagine how pleased they must have been with themselves as they traveled back to Canaan with their sacks bulging with grain? In fact, look how self-confident and cocksure of themselves these brothers are. They're confident in their character. Look at verse 7. They say, far be it from us to do such a thing. You know what that's like us saying? That would be like us saying, we would never do anything like that. By the way, that's a very foolish thing to say, isn't it? It's a very foolish thing to say. Because we can never ultimately know exactly what we would do until we're faced with the issue. And oftentimes we have to say, given the chance... We are all capable of the worst sins. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, you ought to say this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus would have never said, pray that way, unless He knew we are vulnerable to the greatest sins. Not only were these men capable of this, they had already done far worse. And then I want you to notice they were confident in their honesty. Look at their argument in verse 8. They say, we brought back the original silver that was returned to us. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? What would make you think that we would steal? We prove that we are honest men by what we brought back. But hadn't they already tried to steal Joseph's very life? 
Hadn't they tried to steal the plan that God had for him and the plan for the entire family? And then they were confident in their innocence. There's no record in the ancient world that thievery was to be punished by death, but notice what they said in verse 9, if we are found with this cup, we will die, and uh, the person who did it will die, and the rest of us will be my Lord's servants. They are so confident of their innocence, they call for the worst punishment imaginable. But were they innocent? They were not even close. When we get to verse 20, we will discover they believe by now that Joseph is dead. They have never confessed their crime. They've never humbled themselves. And they've never made it right with those they deceived and harmed for so many years. And here they are, on their way to Canaan, congratulating themselves. Everything went so well, standing for their own innocence. Let me say to us this morning, as long as that had continued, there would have been no call, no reason for them ever to face the wrongs of the past. I learned something here very, very important for all of us. Success is often a greater enemy to us than hardship, adversity, or trying times. When all is well and things are going our way, we may rarely face the wrongs that are inside of us. Here's what success often does. It often makes us self-satisfied. It makes us proud of our achievements. It makes us unwilling to see our need. And as long as everything is going the way that these brothers want it to go, they will never face the repentance that is essential for true reconciliation. Let me share a couple of other voices from the past this morning that I think have some very important things for us to realize as we think about what God is doing in the lives of these brothers and in our lives. Here's a a word from Pastor John Calvin, who pastored in Switzerland. Listen to what he says. Such is our innate pride that we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. And all of us know that is often the case. And then listen to these words from apologist C.S. Lewis. When I saw them, I thought, did Lewis really say this? And he did. Listen to what he says. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. And don't we know that is absolutely right? When I first began in the ministry, we wore suits and ties far more often than we do today. It was expected in those days. And there was a time in my ministry when I could go to my closet and there were ten suits. Ten suits all lined up and I could choose whichever one I wanted to wear. But I found something very, very interesting. I always wanted one more. And if Ellen and I went to J.C. Penney, where there was a very nice men's department, eventually I would find myself over to the men's department, and there would be rows of fine suits. And I would lust after those suits. The salesman got to know me, and one day he said, suits wear nice on you. And that didn't help. (laughs) That was like Satan whispering in my ear. And it began to bother me. Really. I began to say, why am I so covetous? No matter how guilty I feel, I I could not reach down into myself and rip that covetousness away. It stayed. And so when I would go back to J.C. Penney, it would well up again within me, and I felt powerless. What was wrong? I was experiencing the very gospel I preached, wasn't I? I was living the very gospel that I preached. That even for those of us who are Christians, let alone the unsaved, there is a wickedness that dwells deep inside. And try as I might, I could not erase that wickedness. I needed a Savior I needed a power greater than myself. And of course I knew I had Jesus as that Savior. I had the Holy Spirit as that power. And what God was showing me was that only Jesus and the Holy Spirit could change me. I could not change myself. And here's what God was looking for from me as He looks from you. If reconciliation is ever to work in our life, it is the third issue. And here is the third issue. God wants us to give a true verdict 
about our guilt. That's what God is after. Look at verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Brothers and sisters, this is not a falling of deference. This is a falling of desperation. Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph here is continuing to press the test to awaken their guilt. The claim to divination is a part of the ruse. He wants to force the brothers to see that a higher power is involved in what is taking place. Do they actually think they could fool the one who could interpret dreams as all the Egyptians knew? And do we think that we can fool a God who knows everything about us and sees all? And finally, Judah breaks And his first three statements show his utter helplessness. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? There is a helplessness and a desperation. The brothers and Judah are now helpless before Joseph. And we are helpless before God. Are we not? Yes, we are. Read with me a very important passage of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Would you read this with me? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. This is exactly how the brothers feel now. Exposed, helpless, guilty. 
just like we are. And did you notice what this says? Everything that we think is hidden and covered, it is not. It is not. All that we think no one else knows about and is covered, I've gotten away with. This says to us, one day we will give account for it unless we come now for cleansing and forgiveness. If you read chapter 44 very carefully, you will find the key word is the word found. It occurs eight times in the chapter from beginning to end. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack And God has found out the guilt of the brothers. Don't miss this, please. The search for the cup is paralleled by God's search of the brothers. Don't miss this. The search of the cup is paralleled by God's search of the brothers. For 20 years... For 20 years, Judah has not confessed his sin and guilt. Why now? Why now? Because God is working. Why did I feel guilty about coveting fine clothes when I had so much? God was working. God was working. Only God can bring about true guilt. Only He can reach our hearts. And we can only be reconciled to God when He exposes our hearts and leads us to Jesus. And we can only be reconciled to one another when God exposes our hearts and leads us to each other. It is always the way of reconciliation. The newspapers carried the story of a young man named William who was a fugitive from the police. The teenager had run away with his girlfriend because her parents were trying to break up the relationship. And before he had run away, he had been seeking a doctor for medical treatment. It wasn't until after he had disappeared that the diagnosis was brought, William had cancer. Now think about this. William was doing the very best that he could to elude the police to save his love. While they were doing the very best they could to catch him to save his life. William thought the police were after him to punish him. 
We're really after him to save him, weren't they? Aren't we like William? Aren't you like William? Am I not like William? Running with all my might from God, lest he expose my guilt. All the while, God is running after me to save me from sin, guilt, and my broken life. Bow your heads with me this morning. Oh, how we need this. Oh, how I need this. Can we say today, God, forgive us. Forgive us for our pride. Stubbornness, our willfulness, forgive us, Lord, for not coming to you for salvation, though our sins are so great. Forgive us, Father, for denying the enmity in our hearts against a brother or a sister and refusing to admit what we have done to bring it about. And thank you for your great mercy All the while we are running, you are running after us. Wanting to bring us to the place of real brokenness, of real humility, of desperation. of falling down before you and letting you be God. What a blessing to come today after this service to the table of the Lord. And one of its great features given by Jesus is we would examine ourselves. Gladly embrace cleansing and walk as free men and women. And so come now and meet us. Mold us and make us 
after your will. For Jesus' sake.